Hello and welcome to another episode of the Wounded Blue Hour. I'm your host, Randy Sutton. I'm a 34-year law enforcement veteran, uh, retired lieutenant from the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department, the author of a number of books, including the soon-to-be-released Rescuing 911, The Fight for America's Safety. I'm also the founder of an organization called The Wounded Blue. It is the nationwide assistance and support organization for injured and disabled law enforcement officers, a nationwide charity that is dedicated to our men and women who are serving. Now, this show, of course, you might probably figure it out, the fact that it's the Wounded Blue Hour, is dedicated to the mental, physical, spiritual well-being and health of America's law enforcement community. And all of our shows are dedicated to bringing awareness to the issues facing American law enforcement. And I am happy to have a guest waiting for us in the waiting room. But before we get to her, I want to do our weekly reality check where we pay our respects to the men and women of the profession who have made the ultimate sacrifice in the last week or so. Now this, unfortunately, um, today I have two names to read. The first is Correctional Officer 3, Jovian Motley of the Texas Department of Criminal Justice Correctional Institutions Division. Correctional Officer 3, Jovian Motley, died while helping restrain a combative inmate at the J. Dale Wainwright Unit uh, on Prison Road in Lovelady. The cause of death is under investigation. Officer Motley has served with the Texas Department of Criminal Justice Correctional Institutions for just about a year. He is survived by his mother and father. Correctional Officer 3, Jovian Motley, Texas Department of Criminal Justice. End of watch Monday, November 13th, 2023. The second is Border Patrol Agent Freddie Ortiz, United States Department of Homeland Security, Customs and Border Protection. Border Patrol Agent Freddie Ortiz was killed in an ATV crash in Douglas, Arizona while responding to reports of undocumented immigrants in the area of Chino Road and 5th Street. His ATV left the roadway and struck a utility pole as he drove along International Drive while searching the area at about 7 p.m. The collision caused the ATV to overturn and he suffered fatal injuries. Border Patrol Agent Ortiz was a U.S. Navy veteran. He had served with the United States Border Patrol for 13 years, assigned to the Douglas Station, Tucson Sector. He is survived by his mother and stepfather. Border Patrol Agent Freddie Ortiz, United States Department of Homeland Security, Customs and Border Protection, end of watch Tuesday, November 14th, 2023. Each of these officers gave their lives in the line of duty, serving and protecting the citizens of their community. Now, two more officers gave their lives. Um, now, we are fast approaching the end of November, and uh, the statistics for the number of police officers shot in the line of duty are updated uh, just after the, uh, the end of the month. But as of the end of October, 325 officers have been shot in the line of duty, an astounding number. And that doesn't count for all of the other injuries that have been sustained due to physical conflicts and uh, attacks physically. So um, 
and you know, I, I give this statistic every show, but it's just too startling not to. And that was that uh, last year, more than 60,000 American law enforcement officers were physically assaulted in the line of duty. 60,000. Remember, there's only about 700,000 cops in all of America. And so that's a, that's a pretty stark number. So um, the danger is there. The physical danger is always, always present. But there's other forms of danger as well. And uh, my next guest, who is the widow of Sergeant Joe Morgan of the Des Moines Police Department, um, has a lot of insight into that danger as well. So let me welcome to the show, Jen Morgan. Jen, thank you so much for taking the time to join me here in the Wounded Blue Hour. Absolutely, thank you so much for having me. You know, um, having this conversation with you resulted from, this is actually part three of a special report uh, that was, that I, I uh, did the last two parts with your husband's uh, old partner and very, very close friend, Matthew Hunter. And um, we, did, we did one show two weeks ago, another one last week, and it was regarding how he was treated once your husband um, committed suicide and, and how it affected him. And, you know, post-traumatic stress was, uh, was a true factor in, in his life as a result of your, of your husband's death. And then the way the department treated him personally and the way they treated the death of your husband. And, and that had a dramatic effect on, his, uh, on Matthew's mental health and well-being. And uh, he wound up suing the police department and the administration for wrongful termination when the chief decided on it based on a misdemeanor arrest charge, very minor charge that was post-traumatic stress related, decided to terminate him. And he fought it all the way. And recently a jury awarded him $2.6 million in a settlement or in a, in actually a conclusion. It wasn't a settlement. It was a it was a jury. Um, it was a, a jury finding, and uh, of course, we anticipate that the, the department is going to is going to appeal that. But it it, it was a milestone in that um, it recognized that post traumatic stress that that departments have a, have an obligation to help officers when they are suffering this. So now I want now let's go to your story and, and, and you're an integral part of this entire, this entire story. It began with you and began with your husband. So I'd like to, I'd like my listeners and my viewers to get to know you a little bit. If you would tell me a little bit about your background, where you grew up and a little bit about your, your history. Okay. Uh, thank you. Um, yes, I, uh, born and raised in Des Moines, Iowa right in the heart of the, the Midwest. And um, I'm 53, um, lived here all my life, um, met Joe 
um, gosh, in 95. <laughs> Seems like a lifetime ago now. Um, he's also an Iowa boy. He's from Cedar Falls, which is about two hours away from where I grew up. Um, and then um, he eventually ended up in Clive, which is a suburb of our um, of the metro area here. And that was where we met um, in 1995. What were, uh, were you working at the time? Yes, I'm, um, I've worked for Farm Bureau Financial Services in uh, regulatory compliance um, for the last 20 plus years. How did, uh, you, how did, you, two, how did you two meet? Uh, we met through a mutual friend, <laughs> uh, funnily enough. Um, we, he was friends uh, with this officer. This guy was an officer in Windsor Heights, which is another suburb. And we um, were all out at the same club. And Joe asked me to dance to a fast song. And if you know either of us, that was a poor choice. But um, <laughs> I said, I <laughs> <laughs> I said, uh, I don't dance. And he said, I said, you know, to this, cause it was a fast song. And he said, well, you know, if I wait for a slow song, I'm, I might miss my opportunity. And, um, you could say I was hooked from there. <laughs> so it, it literally was love at first sight. It was pretty darn close. Yes. <laughs> pretty darn close. So you two, uh, you two dated and, um, how long were you dating before he gave you a ring? Uh, we dated for a year and then we're engaged for a year and um, then we're married uh, two years after we met in 1997. 97. I guess you could say that was a lifetime ago. Yeah. <laughs> right, tell, me about, like tell me about his law enforcement career. Um, yes, he started in um, Cedar Rapids, Iowa, which is another um, town here, mid central Iowa area. Um, he was there for a year and then um, ended up being transferred to, uh, not transferred, but he ended up taking a position in Oxford Junction, Iowa, and he was their chief of police. He was a one-man department. Um, I always say his best stories came out of Oxford Junction because he dealt with it all. Um, he was there for, boy, several years um, and made lifelong friends there people that I still talk to today. We still visited um, Oxford Junction. He tried to get back at least annually um, to visit friends or their friends from Oxford Junction that would still visit here. But he was pretty proud of his time in OJ. He um, ended up building the department to, I think he had two full-time officers and then another part-time officer by the time um, he left, he had contracted with some other um, towns in the area, but Oxford Junction was very small. Um, one stoplight, no fast food. Um, <laughs> but um, One county, said, one mountie, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> um, like I said, his best stories came out of there because, boy, he dealt with everything every time, day or night. Um, but after leaving Oxford Junction is when he came to the Des Moines area. He was in Clive uh, for many years, Clive, Iowa. And that's where I met him. Um, or he, that's was where he, was he a Clive police officer? Yes. Yes, he was. Okay. So, so then, so he was a chief of police of a one man department for several yep. years. And then he became a police officer in a, a, a little larger town. I'm taking it. Yes. 
Yes, it's a suburb of Des Moines. Mm -hmm. Okay, and then he went to the big city of Des Moines. Yeah, yeah. He's, you know, his whole time in Clive, he always told me that he wanted to, he wanted to go to a bigger department and he wanted to apply for Des Moines. So I supported that. Sure, sure. So, um, tell, so he now joins the Des Moines Police Department. Um, do you have any children by this time? Um, he had a son uh, when we met. So, uh, but that was it at that time. Just Andrew. Okay. So now he becomes a Des Moines police officer. Tell me about his career with Des Moines. Yeah, um, it was kind of a big jump for him um, going to Des Moines. They have their own academy. So um, you, even if you're a certified officer, when you get hired by Des Moines, they hire an academy class at a time. So um, it's to kind of build that community and camaraderie um, amongst the officers and, and have everyone go through together. So that was kind of a big adjustment for him. He uh, was one of the oldest in his academy class, I remember him saying, and, and um, they, they run a pretty tight ship. Um, you know, he had his uniform, which I ironed for him and your, you know, ID had to be on, you know, a certain way at a certain height and all these things. So we'd measure that with a ruler every day. And um, they kept him pretty busy, um, I think, probably designed to keep the younger ones out of trouble, but um, they had to type up their notes from from class each night. And then um, they had weekly spelling tests, which I thought were going to be the death of both of us because he was not not a speller. (laughs) Well, I I went through a similar, I I was a a police officer in New Jersey for 10 years before I joined Las Vegas Metro PD. So when I got hired by Metro, I had to do exactly the same thing. And going through the police academy as an experienced police officer is a different kind of experience. But, yes. with, with, but you know, in, in essence, you went through the academy with him. Yes. <laughs> I, yes. I, I get it. I understand. So he began his Definitely. career all over with, uh, with Des Moines. And then, um, mm-hmm. so he gets on, on the road. Um, he served how long with Des Moines before, the, uh, before he took his life? Uh, 23 years. It's 23 years, in- okay. He started in 97, so it was the year we got married. Or 98, I take that back, 98. Okay, so he, he was already an experienced cop by the time he joined, by the time he joined Des Moines, so he had a total of about 30 years in. Right. Okay, that's significant. Yeah. I, I was not aware of that. That's, that's very significant. Um, mm-hmm. So let me ask you this. Did you notice... Um, any any changes in him from the time because you were with him since the beginning basically mm-hmm. in the time that he was a chief of police in a small very small town and then in the next community where he spent several years did you see any changes in him that um, might you know in retrospect um gave you any concern at all about about the way he was dealing with with life and with policing you know that's a great question and um i would say if if you would have asked me that in 2020 um i probably would have a different answer in that i think i've done a lot of um looking back at different situations um one thing 
Um, I'll say is that Joe was involved in a shooting his first year on with Des Moines. And um, it was someone that uh, had thrown a female or was attempting to throw a female over a bridge, um, was still threatening people with a handgun or said he had a gun. Um, so those were all the calls that were going in uh, to dispatch. And he and two other officers ended up chasing this suspect um, down into a dark wooded area. And he turned on them, um, taking a, you know, what was described as a, a firing stance. And he and one other officer fired at him. Um, and the uh, gentleman ended up dying um, subsequent to that. And I, I remember being woken up that night. Um, I remember Joe calling me to say he was okay, but he was involved in something. And I was terrified. Um, you know, I, I didn't sleep from the moment I got that call until he was home several hours later. But I, I remember I was so worried about his state of mind and his, you know, just mental well-being, knowing that, you know, he potentially took someone's life. Um, and, you know, just how he felt about it. And I remember he was so incredibly calm and he didn't doubt the decisions he made that night at all. Um, he said, I did what I had to do to come home. You know, he said, this is the information I had. Um, it turned out the suspect didn't have a gun. Um, there was no gun found. Um, it was uh, deemed a clean shoot. Um, but none of that, none of that seemed to um, have an impact. He just, he was so incredibly solid in the job and the decisions that he had to do because of, you know, the position he was in. And, and I think as I look back, I carried that confidence throughout the rest of his career. And um, I don't know that that was necessarily fair to him, but I, I just, I just know that the way he, felt after that incident and, and just that he was like, no, I'm good. You know, I did what I had to do to come home and, you know, I'm, I'm okay with everything I did. Um, I, I carried that forward for the next 23 years. Wow. Did, um, now from, from, at, from that point on, did, mm -hmm. did you notice, did you notice any changes in, in him at that, you know, after the, after that shooting, did you notice, uh, you know, anything, um, uh, regarding I his... really, I really didn't. And I felt like I was on, you know, hyper alert looking for it. Mm -hmm. Um, it wasn't until, it wasn't until much later in his career. In fact, I would say it was in, um, 2016. So many, many years later, um, was when I, I really noticed that there was an incident that I think just kind of rocked him and blew his confidence. And as much as he hid it from all of us, um, and at the time I wasn't putting it together, um, I definitely can see it now. All right, so we're gonna get to that. But all right, so, so a year into his career, he gets into a fatal shooting. And, and um, you know, we all know that, that uh, sometimes it takes years for symptoms to um to come 
forth as a result of of, of, a, of a traumatic incident like that. Were there any, as his career progressed, um, what what do you remember his assignments during during his his years as a cop? Sure, he was um, patrol. Patrol is where he loved to be. Right, um, where the action is, right? Yeah, he did. He did. He um, loved working the east side of Des Moines. That that was where um, he finished his career. He loved being there. But in between, he also did a stint at the academy, and um, he really enjoyed that as well. He liked working with the new recruits. He liked um, just all of the, the different administrative parts of it. Of course, the hours were good because it was Monday through Friday days, which you know we had never had in, in our relationship. And we joked that it would either make us or break us <laughs> spending all of that time <laughs> together. <laughs> but um, no, those, those were the two, the two main. He, he worked different shifts um, he did try to do overnights for a while um, after he was out of the academy, um, and that was um, 11 to 6, I think, was that shift, and that was brutal. We had a small daughter at that time, and um, while he thought, you know, that schedule would work for us, uh, we found that he wasn't able to sleep when he got off work in the morning, and he was just really struggling to, um, you know, get his body to calm down, and so then by the time my daughter and I got home in the evening, you know, he's growly, he hasn't slept. Um, he, uh, so we would go down to the basement and, you know, try to give him some quiet time before he had to leave for work in a few hours. But um, that, that, was, that was a brutal period. And I remember he called me one night and he said, hey, there's a spot opening uh, patrol for evenings. You know, he said, it'll be one to 11. Um, you know, and he's like, what do you think? And I'm like, I think you should take it. <laughs> he laughed. He said, good, you did. <laughs> so uh, we found that that 1 to 11 shift worked a lot better for our family uh, going forward. And so that's that's where he stayed. Now, uh, children came along. Tell me about your kids. Yes, uh, we have two. Andrew, who is um, 28, and Ava, who is 18. Um, great kids. And uh, my daughter actually uh, wants to go into law enforcement. She's studying criminal justice um, at Iowa State right now. Wow. And we've had a lot of, lot of, lot of, lot of conversations about that, but she's um, incredibly passionate about the mental health side of uh, law enforcement, and she wants to be part of the change going forward and so I can't I can't not support that well wow, that's very admirable good I most most police families are trying to tell their kids to become fire firefighters now you know because of all the <laughs> right? all the insanity okay now um, yeah. he spent the rest of his time on, on patrol when did he get promoted to sergeant Ooh. I don't know the year he got promoted to sergeant. But he was a he was a sergeant for a number of years. Oh yes, yes, quite a while. That was that was essentially what broke up he and Matt from being partners because as a sergeant, you know, he wouldn't be partnered up with anyone, and so Matt gave him a lot of grief about that. <laughs> I bet he up, did. I bet he up, did. Up the duo. <laughs> so, um, and I want to talk about that for for just a moment. So they rode partners for quite a while. Mm-hmm. Yes. 
and yeah. they were they were extre- extremely close friends. Yes, yes, by far Joe's best friend. And uh, and his family, Joe's family, and and you and your family became close as well. Oh yes, very close, very close. So spending time with them and basically, I it's kind of like an extended family. Oh, hundred percent, hundred percent, and and you know how when two people get together that know each other so well. I mean, those two could finish each other's sentences, and you know they tell stories, and of course they get embellished one more than the other, depending <laughs> uh, who's telling their version of it. But yeah, yeah, we go they go way back. All right, so we're coming up on a hard break, and then when we come back. Um, we're gonna we're gonna continue this discussion, and um, and and you know kind of bring it closer to to home. So uh, we'll take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep is infuriating. Your mind races, you toss and turn. Nutrition company Healthy Cell created REM sleep to help you quickly fall asleep, stay asleep, and sleep deep. Unlike other supplements that don't work, REM sleep is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients, supporting all four stages of sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order, risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code out loud. Cofix RX nasal solution has completed the circle and is now offering throat spray with povidone iodine. That completes the protocol doctors like Peter McCullough recommend. If staying healthy is important, you'll want to make sure to add throat spray to your next order of Cofix RX. For a limited time and exclusive for America Out Loud listeners only, you can save 25% off your entire order. Let's double down against colds, flu, strep, RSV, HRV, COVID, and more. Click the banner or go to America Out Loud shop to get 25% off your entire order. Use coupon code OUTLOUD25. That's coupon code OUTLOUD25. The pandemic may be over for some, but millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-term effects of toxic spike protein from COVID-19 and the vaccines. Fortunately, Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at the wellness company designed their spike support formula with the miracle enzyme natokinase, scientifically studied to dissolve spike protein so you can feel your very best. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. AmericaOutloud.news is beaten to the pulse of our nation We know when you're angry, troubled, misled, joyful, and thankful. We know you because we are you. Join us as we explore the most important issues of our time. America Out Loud Talk Radio. It's a fight for the soul of humanity. One Nation Coffee. One Nation Coffee. Patriotic, uh, veteran-owned, very, very 
good coffee. I actually went down and visited their roasting facility and met with the folks down there, uh, John and his crew, and they are amazing people. The coffee is delicious. You order it online, they bring it right to your house. You can get the ground coffee, you can get beans. I like to grind my own. They've got uh, also got these, uh, you know, the, the containers that you put in your Kerrig or whatever that thing is called. So um, One Nation Coffee, go to One Nation coffee.com order your coffee and uh you'll get great coffee and you'll be supporting uh, a patriotic company that supports the wounded blue so uh go to one nation coffee.com I want to tell you about a company called OfficerPrivacy.com. You're asking yourself, what the hell is OfficerPrivacy.com? Well, I'll tell you. It's an amazing company that helps keep law enforcement officers safer. How do they do that? All right, so uh, Pete James, the owner, was a retired police officer from California, deep into the technological aspects of, of law enforcement. and. He discovered that you can find so much personal information on the internet about anybody, including police officers. And when he discovered that, he realized that there's a true officer safety correlation here. You know, the, the people that are anti-law enforcement are very creative in ways to, you know, come after cops and searching for information on the internet about where they live, the vehicles they drive, their family. Um, it's, really, it's really an issue. I didn't even pay attention to it. I had no idea until Pete told me about it and said, you know, he was forming this company called OfficerPrivacy.com that would help get that information off of the internet. And they do it. It's amazing. He, he only hires um, police officers or former police officers to do the work. And it's pretty complicated. They got to go in there. They got to scrub stuff at, off the internet. And they did an amazing job with me. They showed me how easy it was to find out information about me. And then over um, you know a period of several weeks, they were able to they were able to scrub it off. It's amazing. So I urge you to go to OfficerPrivacy.com. See who they are. See what they do. And uh, and you owe it to yourself. You owe it to your family to take this as a serious serious issue. Uh, OfficerPrivacy.com. Tell them Randy sent you. Thanks. All right. Um, I want to talk to you about the Wounded Blue. The Wounded Blue is the national assistance and support organization for injured and disabled law enforcement officers. It is a nationwide charity, and all of the members of the peer advocate support team that make up the backbone of the Wounded Blue are police officers, law enforcement officers who have been shot or stabbed or beaten or run over, but they have faced either serious physical injury and or emotional and psychological injury as well. You see, at the Wounded Blue, we recognize that post-traumatic stress can be as real as a bullet. And combating that takes a massive effort. And that's what the Wounded Blue is for. Uh, we've helped more than 14,000 police officers in the last four and a half years. Um, 
we uh, we we actually went active May of 2019 during Police Week, and have saved lives. If you are a law enforcement officer and you're struggling because you've been injured in the line of duty, because you know we all we we don't understand how we're going to feel and how we're going to be treated until it happens to us. And we it's a very lonely journey being injured in the line of duty. Um, negotiating through this insane workers' comp situation, the way departments treat their cops is abysmal in many, many places. And so knowing that there's somebody that cares, that the Thin Blue Line family really does exist, um, and that is the Wounded Blue. So if you're struggling, reach out to us. Go to thewoundedblue.org. Hit that contact button. And we're, you know, contact us by phone. We have a, we have a hotline, um, 844-TWB-HERO, and reach out to us. Now, here's the other end of this, this plea of mine. It is a plea. We're a charity. We are, we are only funded by donations from people like you. And we are desperately in need of donations. I ask you, I implore you to go to thewoundedblue.org, hit that donate button, give 10 bucks a month, even just that, we, we, will, we will really, really utilize it to the best of the best that we can put that money to use. And that's for the emotional, mental well-being and treatment of police officers. So please, I urge you to go to thewoundedblue.org, hit that donate button, give what you can. Now, if you are a corporation and you want to become a sponsor of this program or the Wounded Blue and many of our programs with the Wounded Blue, contact me personally, randy at thewoundedblue.org. That's randy at thewoundedblue.org. And by the way, we're going to be making some Christmas happen for some needy law enforcement families. And uh, if you want to participate in that, those are uh, incremental donations of 500 bucks for each family. If you want to sponsor a family at $500, call me or contact me, excuse me, randy at thewoundedblue.org. And I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Let's get back to our, our guest, Jen. Thanks. Thanks for waiting for me, Jen. Um, all right. So we have a little background about, about uh, Joe and about his um, his history with the police department. And now we're going to get down to an area that I know is very, very difficult to talk about. And that is, um, when Joe took his own life. Um, can you tell me about that night? Yeah. I mean, it was the most normal day. Um, it was a beautiful day. Uh, it was COVID, so I was working from home. He was off work. Um, I remember that morning. Um, I remember asking him why he wasn't going to the gym. And he said that his elbows were bothering him, so he was just taking a break, which wasn't unheard of. Um, he was sitting out on the deck uh, drinking coffee, and I... Um, decided to move my laptop out there and enjoy the, the morning with him. And um, I remember he went and got me a little, he was big into comic books and all things Batman and DC and Marvel. So he <laughs> brought me this Batman box that I could set on the table out there. So my computer was a little higher and we just sat out there and enjoyed the beautiful morning. Um, 
I worked and then over my lunch hour, we took the dog for a walk and chatted, um, nothing unusual, nothing bad. Um, and then in the afternoon, he was futzing around, I call it, <laughs> and I was working at the kitchen counter and about 3.45, he um, came walking through the house and he just said, hey, he was in gym clothes. He's like, I'm gonna go get a soda. And I said, okay. And that was the last time we spoke. Um, he was gone for probably, it was over an hour, which was a little bit odd because um, it's not that far to get a soda, but I didn't think too much of it either because he's very social and you never know if it was a phone call or a person that, you know, he would be stopped and talking to, but I also knew he had, um, he had a meeting down at the station at 5.30. Um, new uh, promotions had just come out and um, he was going down, I don't, I think it was like a new squad meeting or talk to the new commander or something um, that he had to go in for. So uh, my daughter had come up stairs Oh, probably around 4.30 and she said, where's dad? And I said, he went to get a soda and she's like, not back yet. And I remember I looked on my phone and checked his location and I saw he's in the driveway and we both laughed and she said, he's probably talking to somebody. And I said, yeah, you know him. And she went back downstairs and I went in the bathroom and it was half an hour later five o'clock I thought he must be distracted he must be talking to somebody I know he's going to want to change before he has to be downtown at 5 30 and um, so I went out through the garage and he was um, in the driveway and he was dead in his vehicle and all hell broke loose from that I can't I can't even conceive of went through your mind finding him like that yeah um i just i remember looking in the vehicle and just i started screaming and i ran back in the house to get my phone and called 911 and then my daughter's at the bottom of the stairs looking at me and i'm like don't come up here stay down there and then i called 911 and you know, they were like, can you administer aid? And I was like, no, if I open the door, he's going to fall out. And it wasn't long after that that the first officer showed up. And then my neighbors were out, and one of them's a doctor. And there was just a lot of back and forth inside for me. They, you know, I think they were trying to get me away from the scene. And they said, they asked me for towels. And, it was just a lot of chaos from there, a lot of lights and sirens, and then I was inside and called trying to get a hold of my family so that they could come. The the first officers that were at the scene. Yeah. How did they react with you? Um, they were actually, I mean, they were very good. Um, you know, really just when they first got there, they were very focused on Joe. Um, 
And then um, once, you know, I was back inside the house, there were several officers there with me. And I mean, this is a community that um, several of those officers knew Joe because he worked in Clive and Clive is a suburb, just like Urbandale, the one we lived in. Um, so several of those officers knew Joe, I don't, or knew of him, not necessarily the first ones responding, but some of the ones that came later. Um, and so I, I remember them, you know, just kind of asking me questions, of course, you know, like what had happened and if there was, you know, if he was upset or, you know, and I'm like, no, I'm like, I don't, I like, I, I could not understand what I was seeing and yeah. what had to happen. Um, um, but you know, then it was just, just a flood of people and officers. And, um, I mean, I think the entire Urbandale fire and rescue and, and, and PD was there. Um, one of our good friends and an old neighbor was Urbandale PD and he came, oh, you know, and then people from Des Moines started showing up and, you know, my daughter called our son. And I called Joe's sister, you know, and his parents were two hours away. And I'm like, I can't call them with this news. I need somebody to go there because I didn't want them getting in a car and trying to drive. Sure. Just a lot of shock and disbelief, utter, utter disbelief. And when, you know, some of the Des Moines officers showed up, they were just like, could it have been someone else? Could it have, you know, been an ambush? And I'm like, I don't know. You know, I'm like, I don't, I don't know. They were, they were searching for some type of answer as well. Absolutely. And that's Absolutely. what, and uh, Matt Hunter also responded. He did. He did. Someone had called him. He wasn't working. But they, I mean, they lived five minutes from us. And so someone had called him and told him. What was his reaction? From what he told me, shock and disbelief. He thought somebody was, first he thought the guy was making a bullshit, you know, uh, excuse my language, um, joke or something. And then he was like, no, it's it's real. And I think it was just utter, utter disbelief. That was That is what I was met with. There was not one person in our world that, ever said, I knew he was struggling. Not wow. one. I heard not Joe once. I heard it a million times. Right. Did, um, I know that people from Des Moines showed up, but did the chief show up? Nope. Did he call you? Uh, he came two days later um, with paperwork and you know the stuff that told me that my benefits were running out in two weeks and so um, the, wait, so, wait a minute. so the chief showed up to tell you that your benefits were running out well that was just part of it that was part of it he said he said you know there were several people that asked i had two officers that i would say were were my liaisons but um they said, you know, he wanted to be able to provide me all the paperwork and information I needed, you know, some of it was benefits, 
some of it was, um, you know, insurance, um, because there was a, you know, like a policy through the city, but it was really just, he wanted to be sure he had all the paperwork that I would be needing post. But part of that, he didn't say it, but when I opened the paperwork, it was that my benefits would run out in two weeks. What was his demeanor towards you? You know, he was uncomfortable. It was kind of, it was, it was, it was weird, but he, I remember we sat out on my deck and, um, you know, he just, you know, he was just like, I'm sorry, you know, um, but he was, you could tell he was uncomfortable, but I asked him, I said, you know, there's something I need to know. I said, I need to know, was Joe in trouble? Was there something going on that I'm not aware of? You know, cause I'm trying to rationalize how I got here. And I said, you know, was he in trouble at work? Was, was he under investigation? Was, you know, did he do something? Is there something I don't know? And I remember he looked at me and he just was like, Joe, no, you know, and after he left, I looked at one of the liaisons and I said, can I trust what he just told me? And she said, you know, if Joe was under investigation, she said, I wouldn't be privy to it. She said, however, she said, nobody can keep their mouth shut in a department. And she said, if he was under investigation, somebody would be aware. Somebody would have said something to me and I would tell you. And I'm like, okay. I'm like, I just needed to know because that was the one thing I couldn't validate for myself. You know, I mean, I think, you know, people are like, oh, they must have had money trouble. You know, it's like, no, I ran the money. I ran the finances. So there's no big, right. you know, he hadn't gotten debt or something um so um yeah so that was that was that was my interaction with the chief until um after the funeral until the day of the funeral and then his parting words to me were chin up morgans those the, as he left you that was his parting words chin up mm-hmm he stopped by the vehicle I was in. He, he, he did do, um, he spoke at Joe's funeral. Um, I asked that he did. Um, honestly, I thought it was his job. And because I knew that there was no one else in our world that could hold it together and stand up there and do it. And I thought he owed it to Joe. And I, I thought it was his job to um, speak at Joe's funeral. Um, but as he left, he, reached through the window and he gave me a copy of his, his eulogy. And, and he just said, chin up Morgans. <laughs> that was it. So wait, let me ask you this, you know, when you were at the eulogy, that's a, that's a very personal thing. It's a very poignant moment. Um, did, did you believe that he was sincere? I mean, that it was, uh, that it was done with, with respect and reverence? I do. I think his words were. I know that he um, spoke to a lot of officers because the stories and the things he shared about Joe were things that he wouldn't have known himself. And I know that there were several things that Matt had shared and other officers had shared as well as members of the community. Um, so in that sense, I believed the words were sincere. Um, but his clothing, uh, would suggest otherwise. All right. Now I want to get yeah. to, I want to get to that. It's, it was yeah. my, it's my understanding that 
Um, not only did he not wear his uniform, he forbade members of the police department to wear their uniforms. Correct. To wear their dress uniforms. So um, did they, everyone did, came. Did they do? Did they do a twenty-one gun salute? They did. They did. The honor guard did that. They did do that. It was they, yes, and and you know the the department liaisons. You know I. I told them this. I am thankful for everything they did do because they did a lot. But there are things that they didn't tell me, and there are things that they didn't do that I said I will never forgive them for. Tell me what and those. Tell me what those were. So, um, first one was um, Dana Winger made the decision that the um, only the upper uh, command staff has uh, dress uniforms, and they wear them for every officer funeral. I found out, except. Um, suicide. But at the time, I was under the impression it was they didn't wear them because it wasn't line of duty death. Um, I didn't have any other exposure to non line of duty. I had people that were questioning that and telling me that they thought that was bullshit. And but, you know, I was just I was in a mindset where I was like, the department wouldn't do that to Joe. They wouldn't do that to him. He gave them 23 years, you know, they said they would take care of them. I'm like, they wouldn't do that. And so um, it was that they did not give him his 1042 radio call, mm -hmm. which I was also under the impression was for line of duty only. And then um, just recently through Matt's trial, um, I found out they didn't give him honor watch that they told me they did. And so that meant um, when there was a processional from my home to the medical examiner's office, which is about 15 minutes away. And I was told, I mean, and it was all, you know, squad cars, all of my family and everyone, we were all in the processional. And we were told that an officer would be stationed at the medical examiner's with Joe so that he was never alone until the time he was transferred to the um, funeral home. And um, I just recently found out that the two officers that volunteered for the first shift, um, when they called down to the department to find out who was relieving them, they were told, no one, you should just come back to the department. We're not doing that. So that was another recent gut punch. How does that make, because you, I was how does that make you feel towards the, towards the chief and towards the administration of that agency? I, I can't even describe the anger, the hurt, uh, the disbelief, the disgust. Um, he was one of theirs for 23 years. And it just, and it's heartbreaking. It breaks my heart for him because I know how much he loved that job and how much he gave for it. In retrospect, now that it's been a couple of years, did you learn anything that has provided any clues with, um, you know, with a potential motive? Has anything ever surfaced? Yeah, um, you know, it took some. It took a lot of time. I mean, who? I spent a year wondering if I even, you know, did I even know him? You know, you question everything when you're faced with a situation like this that just doesn't make sense. Um, 
And so I, you know, really started looking at everything. I didn't know um, suicide kills more law enforcement than any other manner of death. Right. Uh, Pre-COVID, now I think it's COVID is the highest, but it's second. I, I had, I never thought of the job he did as tra- trauma, like in those terms. He never spoke of it in those terms. So it wasn't until um, I connected with Blue Help, who um, I started, they sent me some, they sent me information, they sent me support um, and, and just a lot of things that I started recognizing that, oh, this is not unique. I mean, this, again, I was kind of shocked to find out that um, law enforcement suicide was such a huge problem. Um, But as I looked back on Joe and, um, you know, I I went back to to when he lost two officers in a car accident, Um, Susan uh, Farrell and Carlos Puente Morales, he, sent them on a prisoner transport and they were going to Omaha, which is about two hours away. And, um, on their way back about 15 minutes outside the city, um, they were hit head on by a drunk driver and they were both killed as well as their passenger. And Joe had, he selected them to go on that trip. He, um, had talked to them. He was working off duty in one of the parking rooms. He had talked to them about 10 minutes before the accident, just to check on their progress to see where they were, if they were, you know, getting close. Yep. Yep. Sarge, everything's good. We're on our way. And then shortly thereafter, he heard the call go out for an accident and that a Des Moines squad car was involved and he just hightailed that he went out there to the scene. And I remember he just, he was like, they didn't see it coming. I mean, he, he saw the charred vehicle. He saw their bodies in the car. He saw mm. that the passenger, her ankles were crossed in the front seat. So, you know, he's like, they didn't see it. She wasn't braced for an impact, you know, just sitting back relaxed in the vehicle. And I mean, again, it was just a freak thing to happen. But, um, boy, for as much as we talked about it, he didn't, he blamed himself for that. Mm. He blamed himself. And I don't think anybody in the department ever recognized that in him or even thought to see if he was struggling with it. I mean, it was, you know, the department as a whole was mourning. And I, I just don't think that they even thought about him. And he's certainly not going to raise his hand and say he's struggling with it. Right. But it was after that that I noticed he started to doubt his decision-making. Like I said, we talked a lot. I mean, you know, and and again, that's gave me this false sense of um, Joe's fine. I know everything. We talk about everything. Um, You know, there are several spouses that I know that are like, Mm. Oh, he doesn't tell me anything. Like he won't talk about work. And Joe and I talked a lot about it. Um, but he would call me at night and he, you know, he'd be talking about something and he, you know, say, oh, I don't know if I did the right thing. On, and I'd say, well, why do you say that? And he's like, well, maybe I should have done it or this and that. And I'm like, well, did somebody say something? Like, did somebody tell you? And he's like, well, no. But I mean, just like all of this second guessing and 
I didn't understand it at the time because I was just like, this is not you. I'm like, dude, you're like, you're good. You know, you know what you're doing and yeah. if nobody's telling you something wrong. Why are you doubting yourself? And I absolutely know he started doubting everything in him wow. after that. It was, he, he believed that he sent two people to their death, even though we specifically talked about it, you know? And I told him, I said, Joe, there are a million variables in that accident. They could have been five minutes faster, five minutes slower. Yeah. You know, I said, there are so many variables. I said, it's not, this isn't at your feet. And, you know, he would say, I know, I know, but. Right. Well, we, we, unfortunately we've come to the end of our, of our hour. Um, I mean, wow. you, and I, you and I, I know it went by so quickly. You and I could, could talk for hours about this. And I, I, I thank you for sharing this. I know di how difficult it was to, to bring this up, but I know that you're active now in, in helping, um, in helping others who have, who are coping with this type of thing. That and just educating. I mean, people need to be aware. There needs to be greater awareness around this issue because, you know, I'm not saying I could have saved him, but boy, um, having some sort of knowledge of, of what to be aware of or what to think about. I mean, the amount of times that he brought certain things up, you know, in hindsight could have been a trigger again, you know, hindsight right. is 2020. Sure. This, this is a big issue and it's not something to be ashamed of. It's something we need to talk about and raise awareness around. You are 100% correct. And that's why I'm so happy that you took the time and, and, and the personal, you know, involvement to join me here today. Um, thank you so much. It, it's, uh, uh, I know that it's still painful for you, but I know that you're, you're doing your very best to help others. And that is a true legacy. So thank you so I much am. for joining me, Jen. Thanks for joining me here on the Wounded Blue Hour. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Well, I'm afraid that's all we have today. Um, I hope that you enjoyed this show. Um, it's, it, was, it was poignant. It was important that you hear it. And it really brings law enforcement suicide to the forefront. I'm Randy Sutton. We'll see you again next week.